So about a hundred or so years ago, uh, some of you know about this, have heard about it before, because this is a story that I have uh, referred to before. I suppose most pastors have, because it's this fantastic story that we just can't stop telling because it so describes the life of faith. But there's about a hundred years ago, there was a guy, um, he was a an acrobat. He was a circus performer. He was a high-wire high artist, and he went by the name of the Amazing Blondin. And Blondin was like the world's foremost tightrope acrobat of his day, and he became famous for running a, a cable um, from one end to the other of Niagara Falls and walking 300 feet above the falls on a tightrope. Um, back and forth across the falls, and he would draw huge crowds, and he made a lot of money doing this. Um, and he, he was so good that he would originally, he would go out with his long 30-foot pole, and he would do this, and then at some point, he would just throw the pole into the water, and he would just stand there without the pole, and he would spin around, and he would stand on one foot, and he would do all this kind of stuff. And it was so impressive that he would then start carrying things. He would carry like a bag of potatoes in each arm, and he would go across um, he even uh, did it blindfolded. He did it one time at night. He would take a chair out onto, the, onto this thing, carry it out with him. He would put one of the legs of the chair onto the wire and then stand on his head on the chair on the high wire above Niagara Falls. This guy was amazing. In fact, he would, he would take a wheelbarrow with him. One time he took a, um, like a camp stove, put it in a wheelbarrow, and took the wheelbarrow and out to the middle, and then while there, he cooked an omelet and sat down on the wire and ate the omelet, and then pushed the wheelbarrow all the way across the other way. He was very, very well known. You can look him up and read all this stuff on, online and even see photos. But um, he's most famous for the fact that when he would do this wheelbarrow thing, he would put all kinds of stuff in the wheelbarrow, and he would run across this tightrope with a wheelbarrow, and then eventually, as the people would cheer, and he would stop and he'd get off and stand on the rock, and he would say, now, after watching what I've done, how many of you believe that I could put a human being in this wheelbarrow and take him across the falls safely? And everybody cheered. And then he would always say, who wants to go? <laughs> and everybody would drop their heads. You know that look where you don't want to be called on in class? That look? And, and he could never get anybody to get in the wheelbarrow with him. And we've been talking about the life of faith here for the last few weeks, and we're doing this uh, series on faith and what faith really is and what it isn't. And, and that story is a story I've told before um, because when I think of the life of faith, I always think of that idea of getting into the wheelbarrow because it's one thing, isn't it, to stand on the side and clap for God and say, yes, God, I think you're terrific. Aren't you wonderful? It's one thing to come on a Sunday morning and raise our hands and our voices and sing praises to God and tell him how great he is. It is another thing altogether to get in the wheelbarrow and to actually trust that he is going to be able to handle our lives. Because until we get in the wheelbarrow, it's just talk, right? And we've talked about this before, and we've thought about it, but, but here's the problem with this whole thing. See, sometimes the, this idea is taught to us in a way that not only do we believe that God would want us to have enough trust in him to actually get in the wheelbarrow and let him push us across, but we get this idea, and a lot of people have been teaching, that not only do you have to get in the wheelbarrow, but you should be standing up in the wheelbarrow with your hands waving going, wee as you go across the thing. 
And, and I'm, I just want us to address that issue today. I want us to think about faith in a very real and practical way and ask ourselves, is that really what God expects of us? Does He expect us to go through the most difficult, the scariest times of life without ever having a hiccup, without ever having a doubt, without ever having a fear, without ever having a concern, and just going, well, I have this great God. We, my life is great. Is that really what God wants from us. Because in the Christian church, we've been given some erroneous descriptions of faith. So during this series, we've been coming back again and again to a definition of faith that we've been using around here for a long time. It's just kind of a working definition. And it is that faith is believing that God is who He says He is, and He will do what He says He will do. And if you boil it down and you want a just basic working definition of faith, that's the definition we've been working on. But I want to expand that a little bit this morning, and, and, and I hope you're taking notes. If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you five things. I'm going to give them to you real quick, numbers one through five. So get ready to write these things down. This has to do with the definition of faith. Number one, faith and doubt are incompatible. Faith and doubt are incompatible. So if you have faith, obviously you don't have doubt, and if you have doubt, obviously you don't have faith. That's number one. Number two, faith and fear are incompatible because a person of faith is never going to be afraid because we have a God that we can trust and we know that we don't have to be afraid. So if you have faith, you're not going to have fear. Number three, faith pleases God and doubt brings His wrath. Faith pleases God and doubt brings his wrath. So when God sees us acting in faith, he gets all excited and claps for us. And when he sees us doubting and acting in fear, he gets all upset and punishes us. Number four, we all need more faith. Now, this is kind of a no-brainer, right? We, if I was to say, hey, raise your hand if you need more faith, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of us would raise our hand. I don't think any of us are going to stand here and go, oh, not me. I have all the faith I need. I'm just full up on faith. I'm about as faithful as they can be, Right? All people need more faith. One, two, three, four. And number five, write this down. All of the above are baloney. Okay, write that down. In fact, take a big marker and put an X over those four things that I just gave you. Because those four things are all almost true. They're all something similar to the truth. And they're all a part of what is becoming um, a, a, a culture in those who name the name of Christ, that, that believe that somehow, you know, if you're really going to have faith, the kind of faith that, that moves mountains, then boy, you better not have any doubt. You better not ever be afraid. You better not ever, ever be unfaithful in any way or God's going to pour out his wrath on you. And, and what you really need is just more faith. If you just have more faith, you could do anything. There's a lot of teaching out there that is, that is uh, supporting those ideas. And today, I want to tell you why we're putting a big X through that. Because if you bought into the idea that no matter what is going on in your life, that, that no matter how steep the hill is that you're having to climb, that no matter how intense the heat is that you're having to face right now in some area of your life, if you buy into the idea that somehow you're supposed to raise your hands and go, wee, this is so fun, then you have missed the idea of what true biblical faith is all about. Now, some of you are thinking, well, wait a second, I remember when we were looking at the book of James together here on Sunday mornings, James chapter 1 verse 2 says, count it all joy, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You're supposed to consider it joy when you have trials. You're supposed to go wee when you have trials. You're supposed to be having the time of your life, no matter how difficult things are. And if you're not, you're not really trusting God. Listen, the scripture does command us to consider it joy when we encounter trials because God uses those trials in order to build us into the people that he wants us to be. And that's reason to be joyful. But let's not get joy and happiness mixed up. We do this again and again and again. We think that joy and happiness are the same thing, and they're not. Your happiness is tied to your circumstances, and when circumstances are wonderful, your happiness goes up. And when circumstances are difficult, your happiness goes down, and that's normal, and it's human, and if you don't experience that, then you might not be alive. So check your pulse. But joy is a different thing. Joy is this this deep-seated, abiding sense of wellness because God is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. And even in my darkest circumstances, I may be in that wheelbarrow, I may have my eyes closed and be holding on for dear life and praying and screaming and crying, but I'm in that wheelbarrow and God's pushing me across. God says, that's faith. Faith is not that everything comes easy for you. Faith is that even though it doesn't come easy for you, you still walk with God. And so we want to get this idea really fleshed out. We have to dispel this erroneous view of the Christian faith that means that if you're a Christian, you have no concerns, you have no doubts, you have no problems. That's just baloney. And there's a whole bunch of people, preachers among them, who are out there peddling this idea, and they're trying to talk you into the idea that you need to somehow muster more faith for yourself, because if you just have more faith, which, by the way, is displayed by sending money to my ministry at this P.O. Box, if you have more faith, then you will be able to overcome the circumstances that keep dragging you down. And God says, no, no, If we're going to take faith and make it this small little thing that's a tool that I hold in my hand that I wield to do what I want to do, then we're totally missing the idea of faith. I want you to think about this. What's the most amazing thing you've ever seen with your own two eyes? You don't have to answer. Just think about it. I want want you to think about it. The most amazing thing, when you saw it, you went, oh, that's incredible. I, I will never forget the first time I went into the Yosemite Valley. And right? Is this amazing? If you've you've never been to Yosemite, I don't care if you're not an outdoor person, I don't care if you're not a camper, drive through it. You could get on a bus, they take you on a tour, you take your pictures, go back to the Hyatt Regency and stay there if you want to. But go to Yosemite. If you live in California and you've never been to Yosemite, you are missing out. Yosemite is unbelievable. And you go to the Yosemite Valley, and every time I'm there, the same thing happens to me. My jaw drops open, I stand there with my hands hanging down, and I just make some sort of moaning sound. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Um, or, Or maybe... Remember when they finally got the Hubble telescope up in space and we started seeing pictures of what it looks like in outer space? That just blows my mind. (laughs) You could just go online and click on picture after picture, high-definition pictures of all of this stuff that's in space that is so incredible. The vastness of space, the beauty of space, the color of space, it's all incredible. The way that everything seems to be designed to work together in tandem, it's an astonishing thing. You just go, that is amazing. Or probably right at the top of the list for me is a newborn baby. If you've ever witnessed a baby being born, um, I, I would assume 
that it's a, it's, a, it's a more enjoyable experience from the husband's side than it is from the wife's side. But nevertheless, it is amazing. And there is just something I will never forget, all three of my kids, when that nurse handed me this baby that had been outside the womb for about 30 seconds, and my heart just immediately melted, and I fell in love, and I just went, oh my God, this is incredible. So I want you to think about amazing stuff, and what's the most amazing thing you've ever seen? Because I guarantee you, if you were to ask the question of these three followers of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, if you were to say to those three guys, what is the most amazing thing your eyes ever set, or you ever set your eyes on on earth? They would tell you, all three, they would tell you the same thing, the transfiguration. Now, let me tell you about the transfiguration. Uh, I, I can't tell you much because it is the weirdest, strangest thing in Scripture. I don't know what happened. I don't know how it happened. Here's what I understand. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He says to the other nine disciples, you guys stay here and minister to people. Peter, James, and John, you come with me. And he hikes up this hill into the low mountain. And there, when they get to this quiet, alone place, they just sort of stop. And Jesus begins to pray. And suddenly, there's like light flashing around them. Suddenly, there's this unbelievable manifestation. And when they finally get their eyes cleared, Peter, James, and John standing back and the light is shining in their face, when they finally get their eyes cleared, they realize they're not just looking at Jesus. They're looking at Jesus, but it's a, it's a transformed version of Jesus. He, he's like emanating light and power and beauty like they've never seen before. But he's not just there by himself. There's actually Moses who's been dead for like a couple of thousand years and he's there and Elijah is there, the two biggest heroes in all of Jewish, you know, comic books, Moses and Elijah. They're both there along with Jesus and, and there's just this sort of, I, I, the way I picture it, there's this sort of like angelic voices and there's some like Buddy playing the organ or something like that. I don't know. But it's this incredible thing. It's the most amazing thing they've ever seen. And we don't know why it happened. And we don't know why Jesus did it. And we don't know how long it lasted or whatever. But all of a sudden, it's like Jesus must have snapped his fingers and everything went back up into heaven. And Jesus said, okay, let's go. He never explained it to them. He never talked to them about it. He just said, come on, let's go. And he takes them back down the mountain. These guys are like weak in the knees, having seen this incredible spiritual thing. They're blown away. They have this greater glimpse of who Jesus is than they've ever had before. And they're coming down this hillside. And as they come down the hillside, they see the disciples there where they left them. Only it's not just the disciples. Now there's a whole crowd of people. And there's a major commotion going on, some sort of chaos. There seems to be some kind of an argument. There's a bunch of priests and scribes there. And they seem to be arguing with the disciples. There's people running around. People are yelling. It looks like a fight is about to break out. All of this is going on as they come down the mountain from having seen the transfiguration. So take your Bibles and go to the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, in your New Testament, second book. And I want you to go to Mark chapter 9. And we're going to pick up this story. They've just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 14. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And some of the scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, 
It slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. Let's just stop there. Now, we've been talking about Mother's Day, so I want you parents to think about this. Just put yourself in the shoes of this father. We're going to find out as we keep reading that his son has been like this since infancy. That, that, that he's possessed by an evil spirit. And that the evil spirit is always trying to injure him or harm him. Not to kill him, but to harm him. And so he throws him into fire. He throws him into water. You have to watch this kid and hold his hand at all times. You can't be cooking in the house when he's around because he's going to get hurt. You can't go to the ocean where the market is, where you, or not the ocean, but the Sea of Galilee where the market is, where they buy the fish. You can't go there because he'll just go running off into the water and, and possibly drown. He, he's always thrown on the ground and he convulses and he foams at the mouth and, and, and the poor kid is just tortured. And we don't know how long this has been going on. It calls him a boy or a young man, and it, and it says that he's been going on, this has been going on since he was little, so the implication is he's not still little, so for a long time. This is what's going on. Let me ask you this, parents. How would you feel if this was your kid? How would you be doing? Let me ask you to think of this. Is there anything you would not try to help him? Is there any length to which you would not go to try to help this child when this is his life? This is what he goes through all the time. See, we see this happen in our day today. Somebody gets terminally ill and the doctors say, hey, there's nothing else we can do. Man, I've seen people go to other countries to get untested treatments. I have seen people go to witch doctors and try to get a spell taken off of them. I've seen people go to all kinds of uh, acupuncturists and herbal medicines and, you know, whatever they can do and say, I will try this. Why wouldn't you try it? Nothing else has worked. You have nothing to lose. You try anything. These parents are getting to the point where they have tried everything, and now they're coming to Jesus. And as they come to Jesus, I have to think, it must be a last resort. Here's this, this preacher who people say can do amazing things. There's been stories about how he's cast out demons of other people. Now, I want you to go to verse 19, and let's keep going. Jesus answered them and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. Okay, we're starting to get a glimpse of what's going on. It's a faith problem. It's a faith problem. He says, you unbelieving generation. He's, he's hitting them between the eyes about their faith. And by the way, you say, well, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the parents here? Is he talking to the disciples? Is he talking to the priests and the scribes who are arguing with the disciples about this? I'd say he's talking to all of them and more because he's saying it to the whole generation. And, the, and this Greek word for generation is a word that means class. In other words, it's, it's, a, it's, it's people. He's saying to people everywhere in all times, why don't you believe? What is wrong with your faith? It's a faith problem. And it's a whole generation. And us as a generation today, we have the same faith problem. Continue, verse 20. They brought the boy to him. When they saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. 
And he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It is often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He's saying, I have, I've done everything I can. He's been this way since he was little, and it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. He keeps throwing himself into fire. He keeps throwing himself into water. He keeps foaming at the mouth and falling down. We think he's going to die every time. And, and at, as they're having this conversation, what is the boy doing? He's on the ground foaming at the mouth and convulsing. And Jesus says, how long has this been going on? He says, it's been going on since he was little, and now I'm finally just bringing him to you. If there's anything you can do, I would sure appreciate your help. And look at Jesus' response. Verse, 22, uh, verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. If you can. He, he said, if you can do anything to help him, we sure would appreciate it. And Jesus stands back and sort of sarcastically, as best as I could tell, says, if you can? You're not so sure if I can? Well, if you're not sure if I can, why don't you go back to those people in Mark chapter 1 where they kept bringing them to me and they ended up dropping a guy down through the roof and he walked out carrying his pallet. Why don't you go ask him if I can? And, or how about the blind guy when I just spit in the mud and rubbed it in his eyes and he walked away seeing? You wonder if I can? Ask him if I can. Or how about that lady who was taking her son to bury him in the funeral procession and he had been dead and I walked up and touched his casket and I said, arise, and the boy sat up and went home with his mother. You want to know if I can? Ask her if I can. Ask him if I can. If I can, he can. But it's interesting because Jesus is saying to this man that his belief is unimpressive. And then he says, all things are possible if you believe in me. And I love the way the guy responds. Look at verse 24. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. He looks at Jesus and he goes, he goes, okay, if it's a belief thing, all right, I'm all in. I believe. And Jesus must have looked at him the way a mother looks at a kid who's lying. And he went, I believe. Sort of. Help me. Help me with my unbelief. Because we're about to see Jesus do a miracle here. We're about to see this boy set free from the power of Satan and his life changed forever here. We're about to see Jesus do with a word what nobody has been able to do for all of this boy's life with all of the procedures they have tried on him. And Jesus says, if you believe, and the man's response is, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And I love that. I actually love this picture of this guy because he's not showing off for Jesus. He's not pretending to be somebody that he's not. He's not pretending to have a stronger faith than he has. He's just being real here. And he's saying, look, I brought him to you. I have some faith, but it's not great faith. My faith is weak. 
And Jesus' response, when the man says to him, I believe, and then admits that his faith is weak, it says, help my unbelief. I love Jesus' response here. Look at what Jesus says. He says, who do you think you are coming to me with such weak faith? Go away from me and don't return until you have the broomstick of the wicked witch. <laughs> That's a different story. That's a different story. Look at, look at what Jesus says. Um, verse... 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, raised him up, and he got up. When you see this man with little faith, Jesus said, you have to believe. If you don't believe, the implication is it's not going to happen for you. But we read the story. The man admits that he has little faith, and Jesus takes that man's trust and shows him why he's worthy of that trust. Now, this is a nuance that is absolutely essential, and if you don't get this, you're not going to understand the life of faith. So please pay attention to this. It's very important for us to note that faith is not a power that we wield and exercise. It is not a way to accomplish something, even something miraculous. It's not about your faith. It's about the object of your faith, okay? Jesus is saying to the man, All things are possible if you believe. And the concept is believe in Him. And we've been looking at what faith means. Faith means that you put your trust in Him. If you will put your trust in me, I can do it. It's not about what you can do if you have enough faith. It's about what God can do. Therefore, put your faith in Him. And that's a slight nuance, but it makes all the difference in the world. We expect this We expect Jesus to respond to this guy by telling him off because his faith is so small. But let's just remember, there's no reason to expect that of Jesus. That's not how Jesus responded to Peter when he denied him three times. He restored him to fellowship and gave him a ministry. It's not how he responded to Thomas when he doubted his resurrection. It's not how he responded to Mary and Martha when they were weeping at the tomb of their, of their brother Lazarus and saying, if you had only cared enough to come and be here, you could have saved him. See, Jesus looks at us in the weakness of our faith and he sees us with the eyes of a loving father and he says, I get it. I know you don't understand this stuff. I know you don't really get the kind of a relationship that I'm offering you and I know you don't fully understand the power that I bring to the table and how I want to exercise it in your life. But I want you to know it's going to be okay. And I could just imagine Jesus looking at that man and saying, look, I know next time you're near a fire, you're going to grab him and hold on to him because you're afraid he's going to throw himself in. But listen, trust me, it's over. It's okay. It's gone. Look how he responds with all of that grace. And of course, the disciples are baffled by the whole thing because they usually are. And as soon as they get alone with him, they start asking him questions. Look at verse 28. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. This kind cannot come out by anything 
but prayer. They don't get it. They're saying, we tried to do this. Why couldn't we do it? And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you don't have the power to do it. What you have to do is call on me. I have the power to do it. It's not your faith. It's not your strength. It's not your righteousness that accomplishes anything good. It is God who is available to you through a saving relationship. And when you have that relationship, you can call on him and he can do it. And so he says, pray. Just pray. And church, I got to tell you, if you're dealing with things and you feel like you're under the attack of the enemy, don't sit there and shake your finger at the devil and tell him what to do. He will kick you in the teeth. You know what you need to do? Pray. Call on God. Even Michael the archangel, when he was confronted with demonic forces, did not tell them what to do. He called upon God and said, please come and, and defeat these forces on my behalf. See, we need to understand it is not about you, your power, your strength. It's about him and what he can do. These things, these can only be done by prayer. Matthew gives us the same story. Skip over to the book of Matthew. It's just right to the left. Go over to Matthew, it's chapter 17. Go over to Matthew 17, and we're going to see the same story. Now, what you need to know, Matthew is an accountant, right? So Matthew's versions always have details that others are missing. So Matthew chapter 17, and by the way, Matthew was there that day. Mark heard, heard about this from someone who was there that day. So Matthew chapter 17 and verse 19, we're going to see the same story unfolding. And, and all of this has just happened in verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why, would, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to the mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, I know that the room is filled with Bible scholars, so let me ask you this question. How big is a mustard seed? Big or small? Small. You ever get a poppy seed muffin at Mimi's? Right? Those little tiny seeds, that's something like a mustard seed. Okay? So that makes this the weirdest, one of the weirdest things Jesus has ever said. It doesn't really make sense at all. He says, you couldn't do it because of the littleness of your faith. Why couldn't we cast it out? Guys, it's because your faith is too little. What you really need is faith that is very, very, very little. That's weird, right? It's because of the littleness of your faith. You need faith like a mustard seed, tiny, tiny faith. And you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. It's a weird thing to say. Jesus, why couldn't we do it? Because you have very little faith. What you need is very, very little faith. Now, now get this. He's not saying that the quantity of their faith is not enough. How do, you, how do you talk about faith quantitatively? Do you get a bucket of faith? Do you have a barrel of faith? Do you have a, you know, a pool of faith? Faith is not a measurable physical thing. He's not talking about literal size here. What he's talking about is the kind of faith, the strength of the faith that they have. And he's saying they have the wrong kind of faith. They seem to think that because they know him, they can do anything. But that's not the idea here. Remember what he said in Mark. This kind of thing is only possible with prayer. In other words, you got to let it be me. you got to come to me. you got to let me be the one who handles it because you can't handle this. You don't have the power to do anything, but by faith, you can call upon the one who has the power to do anything. 
Turn real quick to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to John chapter 15. This is a verse worth highlighting in your Bible. Jesus is giving this analogy about how He is the vine and we are branches and we need to abide in Him. John chapter 15, verse 5, here's what He says. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. That's what you and I can do apart from God. Nothing. So he is not telling us, listen, get more faith, get more faith, get more faith. If you just have more faith, come on, you can do it. Muster up all your faith and then you can do stuff. Even though there's a lot of people out here teaching you that that's exactly what he means. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I already have power. Trust me. Come to me. Call on me. I can do things you can never imagine. It's not about how much faith you have. It's about the object of your faith. There's a businessman, and, and he has to fly from L.A. to New York, and he does it every Monday. He spends three days in New York, and then he flies back home. And he's been doing it for 10 years. Every Monday, he goes to the airport, gets in the same flight. He knows the flight attendants. He knows the pilots and the co-pilots. He, he has the same seat that he sits in. They save it for him, and they give it to him. They know he's going to be on the Monday morning flight every single Monday morning. As soon as he gets on the plane, he sits down. He opens up his laptop. He begins working, and he works all the way to New York. And then he closes up his laptop, and he thanks the stewardess, and he thanks the pilot, and he gets off the plane, and he goes to work, and he gets back on the plane on Wednesday, and he goes home, and he's been doing it every week for 10 years on the same flight that morning. There's a woman who does not board by herself. She boards with her son and her daughter-in-law. She's 87 years old, and she's never been on a plane in her life. And the reason she's never been on a plane is because she was there when planes were just starting to be used. And she remembers all the stories of plane crashes and all the safety issues. And she doesn't think about planes the way that more modern people think about planes. To her, a plane is a giant flying hunk of metal that is going to be hurled into the ground. And if you manage to somehow land safely, it will be the luckiest thing ever. And she is terrified and she would never get on a plane except that her sister is near death in New York and she has to see her. And so they get special permission to walk on the plane with her. They get her seated. They get her buckled in. They pray with her. They kiss her. And, and they say, we're going to go. And they tell the, the flight attendant, please take special care of her. And they watch out for her. And the whole time she's just shaking her head and her eyes are closed. And there's tears just rolling down her cheeks. And she is holding onto the seat. And her knuckles are white for 3,000 miles in the air. And they're sitting next to each other in the same row. And let me ask you a question. Which one is going to get there alive? Which one's going to land first? I mean, the, the guy who has absolute confidence, shouldn't he get there at least a couple hours before her? She's got no confidence whatsoever. She has no faith whatsoever. She's sure she's going to die. In fact, probably her side of the plane should crash and his side of the plane should fly on, right? But that isn't how it works, is it? Because it has nothing to do with the confidence of the people who are sitting in the coach section. It has everything to do with the credibility of the pilot and the strength of the plane. It is not about your faith. It is about the object of your faith. And if we will come to him and trust him, he will do amazing things that we can watch him do and we will be astounded. 
Now, you may be thinking, listen, isn't um, doubt the opposite of faith? No, doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is disobedience. Either I trust Him and therefore I obey Him, or I don't trust Him and therefore I don't obey Him. So if you want to ask yourself, how is my faith life doing? Ask yourself, how's my obedience doing? If you trust Him, you obey Him. And that makes me think of this. Um, One of my children who shall remain nameless, but she's the firstborn, um, (laughs) when she was little and we were doing the swimming lesson thing, have you done that with your kids? Right? And they have the little floaties on their arms and you take them in the pool and you hold on to them. She just didn't take to water very well. She was terrified of water. We would just get her in the little wading pool and she would scream until we took her out. And so we did the swimming lessons thing and I would get in the pool with her and I would help her. The other kids, half her age, they're just swimming right past her, diving off the high dive and all this kind of stuff. And she's just like shaking like this and I'm trying to get her to float and move her arms. And she just struggled with it and struggled. She was terrified of the water. And I remember after two seasons of swimming lessons... Two summers of swimming lessons, she was still petrified of the water. And I remember getting in the pool, standing by the side of the pool, and her standing on the edge of the pool with her mom standing behind her and me standing a foot from her in the water saying, jump, jump. And I remember her sitting on the side of the pool, screaming her head off. She was not having a great day at the pool. And I'm standing there and I would move closer and closer and say, listen, you can trust me. You can trust me. I'm a good swimmer. I can handle this. I'm going to catch you. As soon as you jump, I'm going to catch you. I'm not going to let your head go into the water. And she's screaming and screaming, and her mom's trying to talk to her and encourage her, and I'm getting closer. I get to where my hands are like six inches from her, and I'm pretty sure her mom gave her a little nudge. (laughs) But eventually, she jumped, and I caught her. And it took like an hour to get to that point. So obviously, as I'm frustrated, once I catch her, obviously, I take her out of the pool, I march over to the picnic table, I sit her down, and I say, listen, I can't believe you didn't trust me. I can't believe that you would be such a chicken. I have been swimming my whole life. I grew up at the beach. Don't you know I used to surf? I know everything there is about swimming, and you don't trust me enough? Well, guess what? I'm not giving you another chance. And I walked away. Did I do that? Of course not. Why? Because she's a little girl and I'm her daddy. And all I want is for her to succeed in life. All I want is for her to experience all that, that life is supposed to hold for her. I want her to know the joys of swimming. And so I pat her on the back and I hug her and I encourage her. And I take her around to everybody and I say, hey, this is my daughter. She just jumped in the pool. Isn't it awesome? And everybody claps for her. That's what you do when you're a parent and you love your kid. You understand that their faith is not fully developed yet. You understand that they're afraid. We spent the first three years of her life teaching her to be afraid of swimming pools, right? (laughs) Then we took her to the swimming pool and we're upset that she was afraid. You guys, God looks at us and he goes, okay, I get it. Really, honestly, I get it. You're a chicken, okay. It's hard for you to want to get in the wheelbarrow. Okay, listen, I get it, but I'm your dad. And I would never call you to anything that I wouldn't bless you with. So please, trust me, if you don't, you're going to miss 
everything. It's okay to struggle with your faith. Let me give you three practical things and I'll let you go. Number one, here's what I take away from this story. If you're struggling with your faith, don't pretend that you have no doubt or fear. You're not fooling God. God knows. And He's not upset about it. He gets it. Don't pretend. Don't try to impress God by acting more faithful than you are. He knows. He understands. But that doesn't mean He lets you off the hook. That doesn't mean that He says, okay, you don't have much faith. Just go live without faith. He goes, no, I love you too much. Trust me. Take one step. Just hold my hand. Take one step. But don't try to fake God out. Number two, when in doubt, obey anyway. Obey anyway. Just take a step. I'm, I'm not saying go climb on the high dive and do a double backflip. I'm just saying take a step off the edge and let God catch you. Just get the experience of what he does when we trust him, even when we're scared. And the third thing, don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up about the weakness of your faith. Just admit that you are who you are, cry out to him, and take a step in. If you take a step anyway, you will discover by experience the thing you've been hearing about all these times, that our God is a faithful God, and that if you're going to really walk with Him, you have to believe that He is who He says He is, and He will do what He said He will do. Remember, it's not the amount of your faith that matters, it's the object of your faith. And so will you put your trust in Him and take a step of faith? Whatever area that your heart is beating about right now, Will you take a step of faith? You will never be sorry that you did.